Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to gather around your word. Uh, We just pray, Lord, that you would open your word to us again. Some of these stories about Jesus we've heard so many times, and and maybe we've just failed to to see the significance, or maybe we've seen it and we've forgotten it. So I I just pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes uh, to see what you have for us in this great story today of Jesus' first miracle. To send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak to each of us. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Well, let me read the text, and then there's a lot of details in, in this text that I want to, uh, to share with you, and then, and then after that I want to be able to share with you then some takeaways on the text uh, as, we, as we just ponder it and, and think about what happened here. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for, Jewish, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine uh, first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen. John MacArthur writes, at the heart of most humanistic systems of belief is the erroneous, rationalistic belief that people, beginning only with themselves, can construct an adequate worldview. And it certainly seems to me that many people today have have tried to to have a worldview that's totally apart from the Scriptures. If they believe in God at all, it's become a God of their own making. They've tried to, to construct God according to their limitations in their worldview instead of understanding and trusting in the God of Scripture. In short, they've tried to create a God made in their own image. Someone has written that God created us in His image, and now we've tried to return the favor and create God in our image. And this humanistic attempt to create God in our own image was clearly illustrated in the 19th century, quote, quest for the historical Jesus. 
It's been repeated in the 20th and 21st centuries in the infamous Jesus Seminar. And both of these movements began with the blasphemous premise that the, quote, real Jesus must have been an ordinary man. Therefore, there was nothing supernatural and divine about him. So one of these things these movements did was to ignore any attempt or to explain away anything supernatural and miraculous that Jesus did. But beloved, my faith has always been, and by the grace of God, it always will be in the God of Scriptures, in the Jesus found in the pages of Scriptures, and the historical Jesus of Nazareth and the divine supernatural Jesus are one and the same. As we saw a few weeks ago, in Jesus, humanity and deity dwell. In Jesus, the ordinary and the miraculous meet. In John's gospel, as in all the gospels, we encounter the miracles of Jesus. And they're one of the most convincing proofs that Jesus was and is divine. John records eight miracles, or eight miraculous signs as he prefers to call them. And Jesus surely performed many others, but these are the ones that John chose to tell us about because he wanted us in these to see the deity of Christ. And, of course, the first of those miracles is the one we read about this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's look at this miracle a bit uh, and make sure we understand its background and what really took place on that day in Cana. <clears throat> the text indicates, verse 1, that Jesus and his disciples must have arrived in Cana on the third day. And that would have meant the third day uh, after they left the vicinity of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And that makes sense. Cana would have been about a three-day journey, an easy three-day journey on foot. Jesus and his disciples, verse 2, were invited to this wedding. And since his mother was so involved in the details, this may well have been a wedding of a relative or a family friend. Now, weddings today are big social events, but the celebration of weddings in ancient Judaism may have been even more significant, and weddings were celebrated for an entire week. Today, weddings are traditionally paid for by the bride's family, but in ancient Judaism, the groom was responsible for the expenses of the wedding. Uh, with two daughters and one yet to wed, I'd like to go back to that ancient tradition myself. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll work on that. I don't know. I wonder if my son-in-law would pay me back. <laughs> Probably not. In all seriousness, uh, the wedding marked the culmination of the betrothal period, which often lasted several months. And during the betrothal, the couple were, were considered legally husband and wife. However, they did not live together, and they did not consum consummate the marriage during that time. But the betrothal could only be terminated by divorce. And we see witness of this uh, in Joseph wrestling with the decision of whether or not to divorce Mary when he learned that she was pregnant during the betrothal period. Under Jewish law, the normal or typical day for a wedding was actually Wednesday. And on that evening, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house 
They would escort the bride and all of her attendants back to the groom's house, and that's where the wedding would take place. When you get home today, read Matthew 25, verses 1 to 10. That's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And you find there uh, this practice of the bride and her attendants waiting for the groom uh, to get there. And some of them run out of oil uh, because he's delayed in coming. I've already mentioned, but Jesus' mother Mary's very involved in the details of the wedding, uh, which again suggests she was a relative or a close friend, probably uh, of the groom's family, who would have been handling all of those arrangements. You see, the average guest would have not known that they were running out of wine. But Mary knew, and she took the initiative to solve the problem as recorded in verses 3 to 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Kind of a curious statement there, isn't it? When he said, what does this have to do with me? Well, wine was the staple drink of the ancient Near East. And due to the warm climate and the lack of refrigeration and the lack of preservatives, it was fermented, folks, which meant it was a drink capable of making someone drunk. However, to help avoid inebriation, the wine was often diluted with water. But this wasn't grape juice, folks. No matter what someone tells you, this was not grape juice. And this is not a consumption. a sermon on the consumption of alcohol, but the Bible does not condemn the drinking of wine and even occasionally commends it. However, the Bible does strongly condemn drunkenness, and we'll end there for now on that one. But the dilemma here is this, that a major crisis loomed because the supply of wine was insufficient for the number of guests. And this situation would have been very embarrassing for the couple and their families. And and it would have been remembered for years to come. There would have been a stigma upon the family. Maybe a stigma that they carried for the rest of their lives. And in fact, the bride's family could actually bring a lawsuit against the groom's family because they didn't provide adequate uh, resources at the wedding. This was a serious dilemma. So you can see why Mary was deeply concerned. For she was a relative. She was a friend. And so she brought this problem to Jesus. Did she expect a miracle? We don't know. She was obviously aware of Jesus' virgin birth. She was also obviously aware of the conversation that Gabriel and others had had with her about who this child would be. And Jesus first replies, verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And it seems like a rude reply, doesn't it? But though woman was not an intimate word like mother, the word translated woman was a polite form of address, much like our English word ma'am. So he was saying to his mom, ma'am, My hour has not yet come. This doesn't have anything to do with us. 
Jesus will use this exact same word when he's hanging upon the cross and he looks down at his mother and he looks down at the disciple John and he says, woman, and he actually says, ma'am, I'm going to take care of you. John has got this. It was a polite word, maybe not as intimate as mom, but Jesus was not being rude to his mom. He was taking care of her. And when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's referring to his death and his glorification at his ascension. He's saying, the time for my full messianic glory is not here yet. I'm not going to reveal that yet. But he does perform his first miracle, and he begins to reveal his deity. It's kind of a precursor to that day when he's going to be fully glorified. The miracle also reveals the great compassion of Jesus you know, Jesus may have answered reluctantly, but Mary knew her son. She knew that he loved people and that he was going to take care of the people. So verse 5, she told them, do whatever he tells you to do. And by the way, the word servants here is our word diakonos, which, from which we get deacon. So these were not household servants or slaves. These were probably, again, family and friends that had come to help with the wedding. So what does Jesus do? Well, verse 6 tells us there were six large jars there, or pots, clay pots, earthenware pots. And each of them held 20 to 30 gallons of water each. As you may recall, Jewish laws for purification required that everybody be cleansed before they ate a meal. So these, this water was there to cleanse all of the people at the wedding, to cleanse all of the utensils, anything that was used for serving. So it would take, for a large wedding party, a lot of water. 120 to 180 gallons were available for use. And notice the specific details in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. They may have topped them off, some of the unused ones. They may have filled others. They may have dumped everything out <clears throat> and filled every one. But notice, either way, they filled it to the brim. Why does John go to the trouble to tell us they filled it to the brim? It's to make the point, folks, that nothing was added to that water. No one slipped in there, like critics will try to say, and poured a little wine in it. They were filled to the brim with water. There was a true miracle as Jesus transformed 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. And not just wine, it was the best wine. This detail, again, reminds us of the great compassion of Jesus. John MacArthur notes that Jesus not only provided more than enough to finish the celebration, but he provided enough for a, a tremendous wedding gift for the bride and groom. Further, it was the best wine. It may have been the best wine ever, but it was certainly the best wine at that celebration. At least that's what the master of ceremony says in verse 10, that they usually wait till people get drunk and they serve the cheap stuff, but you save the best for the last. 
there are a lot of details in this story, and I've just scratched the surface on a few of those. But what are some takeaways for us? First of all, Jesus is our miracle-working Savior. Any attempt to deny his miracles or to explain away his miracles is to deny that Jesus is our Savior. If he couldn't turn water into wine, then he couldn't, be, couldn't raise on the third day. These miracles are, as John calls them, signs that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the only one who can save us from our sins. We believe in a miracle-working Savior, and He can and He still does work miracles today. As I said in my devotion, sometimes He does, sometimes He doesn't, but the point is He still can and He still does. Further, by attending a wedding and performing His first miracle at a wedding, Jesus sanctified both the institution of marriage and the service itself. Marriage is a sacred institution. Marriage is the sacred union of one man and one woman, and they become one in flesh in the eyes of God. And the wedding service is first and foremost always a worship service. If Jesus so sanctified and valued marriage, then surely we should hold marriage in honor ourselves. Also, Jesus' presence at the wedding and the miracle he performed tells that Jesus enjoyed a good celebration. Now, he didn't turn water into wine so that everyone could get drunk, folks, but he enjoyed a wholesome, good, and fun fellowship. And he invites you and I to do the same, to enjoy life. To me, Christians have a hang-down look uh, all the time. There no, seems to be very little joy in our salvation. Jesus wants us to enjoy the salvation especially that we have. The first miracle, as I've already said, also reveals the great compassion of Jesus. You know, he could have stopped by just saying, it's not my time. Not going to do it. But he had compassion on this family. He knew how big an embarrassment this was going to be for that family. This is the first of his compassionate acts. And they concluded with his act of mercy, his death for sinners like me and for you. And Jesus continues to have compassion, folks. He loves us. He has compassion upon compassion upon you and upon me. I think this story also reminds us that we can go to Jesus with all the details of our lives, with every concern. If Jesus was concerned and willing to address the embarrassment of this family, he's willing to address all the situations you find yourself in. There really is nothing too small or too large to take to Jesus. And the ultimate result of this miracle is found at the end of verse 11. And it says, and his disciples believed in him. They began to know in those moments that Jesus was who he said he was. And they believed in him. Do you believe in Jesus? Not a Jesus of your own making, 
but the miracle-working Jesus of Scripture. The one whose greatest miracle and greatest compassion was to die and rise on the third day. That you and I might die to our sins and be raised to life. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Scriptures? Let's pray together. Lord, we we all sometimes want to make Jesus uh, who we want Him to be. We want a Jesus that we call out when we're in crisis only or when it's convenient to have Him around. Lord, we learned in one of the Sunday school classes that you invited us to a great banquet, but we want to just drive by and have a little drive-through time with Jesus and then go on about our day. And Lord, that's not the Christ who you are. You are fully man and fully divine. You're the only way to the Father. You're the one we must worship and adore. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us if, if we somehow tried to fabricate our own Jesus instead of the Jesus of Scriptures. I pray that as we continue to study John, that we'll just see exactly who you are and be amazed at who you are. And, Lord, there's some here today in need of a miracle, and you're still working miracles, and we pray that you'd do a mighty act in their lives. We pray that you'd do something so amazing that you alone get the glory and the credit, that it's, that it's so amazing that it has to be supernatural. We thank you also that you've sanctified marriage and made it holy. We pray for every marriage in our church and indeed marriages everywhere. Strengthen our marriage bonds, O oh Lord. Calls us to do all we can to keep our marriages pure and holy and joy-filled. And Lord, we, we thank you that you enjoy a good celebration. Thank you for giving us fun things and activities that we enjoy. Most of all, Lord, we thank you that we can have joy in you. We thank you for the joy of our salvation. And we thank you, Lord, that nothing is too small or too big to bring to you in prayer. Lord, we're trusting you to meet our needs. Whatever they are today, we ask, O oh God, that you would meet us at our point of need and continue to provide for us. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be all glory and honor and praise today and forevermore. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you all.